you liking that jalapeno cheddar bagel sandwich from Tim Hortons? Awesome. The sausage, fluffy eggs, nice. the cheese, uh. and a kick from those jalapenos. Jalapenos. Pinos? Pinos. 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 Got it. Next time, I'm going to try their spinach mozzarella bagel. Dude, mozzarella. Oh. Now at Tim Hortons, grilled bagel breakfast sandwiches. Try a jalapeno cheddar or spinach mozzarella bagel. Mozzarella. Nice. The exotic flavors of Tim Hortons bagel breakfast sandwiches for a limited time at participating restaurants. I want to welcome you to Dream Chasers Radio with me, your host, Yaga Diamond. Oh my gosh, I'm having such a wonderful time. It is the month. I mean, are we in February already? I mean, this is ridiculous how this year, 2020, is going by so fast. We have so many different wonderful people just to introduce you to and to show you how many people are actually going for their goals and their, and their dreams this year. And not only that, they've manifested this year from last year's work, and that's what we all need to do. I want to thank you again for joining us. You can get us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeart, Breaker, Stitcher, Spotify. I mean, you keep going. Deezer, tune in. I'm out of breath. Okay, so, <laughs> but also, you can get us on Roku. And I'm actually almost finished building the Amazon Fire. So you have us on Amazon Fire as well. Um, and also Vimeo. So we have our TV stations. Our radio station is Real realradio247.com. And that's 24-7. So realradio247.com. And some of these interviews will actually end up on that radio station. I am so excited to have this next guest with me today. An author. I mean, oh my gosh. I, welcome to the show. Please tell everybody who you are and what you do, please. Right. My name is Cal Risman, And uh, uh, my book is Knowledge to Power, Understanding and Overcoming Addiction. My background uh, is that I am a master addiction counselor. I'm also a certified hospital chaplain, a nicotine dependency counselor, marriage and family life therapist. And uh, my work for the last 40 years has been with addictions of all kinds. I've done inpatient, outpatient, done groups on psychiatry, and uh, I just wanted to share what I've learned. I think that my book is good because I'm a farm boy by background. I still got cows now. Mm -hmm. And I like mm -hmm. to keep things down to earth and simple. And this is a book that doesn't engage with a lot of uh, psycho babble and technical terms. This is a book that everybody can understand about the disease of addiction from the standpoint of the addicted person or the standpoint of the family or who grew up in a family of addiction. So that's that's kind of my passion to help people who have addic the addictive illness. And uh, that's why I wrote the book. Wow. Okay. So, all right. So people often sometimes say that addiction is like a disease, but not a real disease. What What do you say about that? Well, it's been, addiction has been a disease, according to the American Medical Association, since the mid-1950s. Hmm. And what you have to have to be a disease is you have to have signs and symptoms that are not symptoms of something else. Hmm. It has to be progressive, chronic and fatal if left unchecked, like any disease, and there has to be 
some element of loss of control with this, or another way of saying that is lack of power. So it is a real disease. It's it's a brain disease. Uh, there are actual biochemical changes that occur in the brain, mm. and if you would put uh, drugs or alcohol, for example, in the brain of somebody who's not addicted versus the brain of somebody who is addicted, mm. when it's broken down chemically, you have two completely different substances. So it's it's a disease in every sense of that word. So what, what's an example? I mean, how, how would you know? Well, um, let's take uh, diabetes. My, in my wife's family, they have uh, a lot of diabetes. And there's a loss of control there, and mm. that's a loss of control over sugar. Mm. Or if you're a heart patient, there's a loss of control either how the heart is functioning or the, the uh, clogging of uh, vessels leading to the heart and things like that. But let's take an example of, of an illness that maybe we've all had at one time or another, and probably a lot of people have already had this winter, and that's the flu, like stomach flu. Mm-hmm. So if you have the flu, there are symptoms of that. It's vomiting, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, aches, fever, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And with that disease, it doesn't do a lot of good to tell somebody who's uh, in the midst of vomiting and diarrhea, hey, use your willpower. Yeah. That's what they don't have. Yeah, right. if, if, if they had that, they wouldn't have the flu. Or if a diabetic had willpower over sugar, they wouldn't be a diabetic. Right. And so the same thing is true with addiction. When people try to say, well, you know, just you make up your mind, you use your willpower. That's what the person doesn't have. And so they, you can't use what you don't have. So it's a disease in, in that example, like diabetes and flu and heart disease and cancer and other things. Okay, so is it true that this runs in families like this is like hereditary or something? I heard people talk about, oh, well, you know, if your family is like prone to this, then you're going to be like that too. And it's not true. I, I mean, at least not for certain people, but is it true for the majority? It's generally true for the majority. There are, there are always exceptions to the rule, but here's an example. If you have one parent who is a drug addict or alcoholic, mm-hmm. uh, you are... Uh, you are four times more likely to lose control if you ever start using drugs or alcohol. And mm. if you have two two parents who are addicted, you are uh, exponentially more likely to lose control. And there, besides just being in families, the diseases also tend to run in ethnic groups. And uh, let me give you an example of this. When I did my training, it was at the North Dakota State Hospital in Jamestown, North Dakota. Mm. About 15 to 20 percent of our patient population was Native Americans mm. and uh, mostly uh, Sioux tribe, some Crow, some Blackfoot, but mostly Sioux. And uh, what I discovered is that Native Americans have almost no tolerance for alcohol at all. Mm. I mean, if you're if you're a Native American and you start drinking booze, you're gone. It's almost that cut and dry. They just they mm. don't have the same enzymes in the brain. So it's not only families but also ethnic groups uh, that can get certain diseases. Like, let me give you another example: sickle mm. cell anemia. Oh, uh, who who gets that? Blacks. Mostly African Americans. Blacks. Right. Why? I don't know. It's just, it's you know, it's kind of a, a ethnic genetic thing. Mm-hmm. So your family and your ethnic background make a lot of difference in terms of how predisposed you are to losing control of an addiction. Mm. 
Wow. You know, this, this, this day and age, everybody's, I call it the microwave generation. <laughs> it's like <laughs> five seconds done. Okay. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> so people, they don't understand that it takes a while to get into this, but it also takes a while to get out. You know, right. tell me about that. Tell me about how this affects people. I mean, it's just like, it's ridiculous. Well, we are, as you said, we are a, a quick fix society. We are mm -hmm. an instant gratification kind of bunch. We we don't, we don't want to wait for something. We we right. want it right now. That's why we have instant coffee, instant cash, instant information, <laughs> microwave oven, supersonic jets, automatic dishwasher. We we've got everything that's quick and easy. Yeah. And here's the here's the secret to this. The use of drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, any other addictive agents, tobacco that you can think of, the use of that is because it does change the way we feel for a while, and it does it in a hurry. And so there's no big secret to me as to how people get into addictive behaviors. It's because they work for a while. But the second part of that statement is very, very important. And when these addictive agents stop working for us, and stop solving problems and instead start causing problems, why well, by then it's already too late. Yeah. So, you know, we, we just, we oftentimes don't have a lot of experience in dealing with our emotions and our feelings. And so we're always looking for something that will do that for us. And using addiction, addictive agents seems like the pure deal to do that, which mm. is one of the reasons why young people are, are so attracted to that. Mm -hmm. They haven't had a lot of emotional experience struggling and, and, you know, they, they want to get rid of those kind of feelings of rejection and insecurity and, you know, all the things you have when you're young. Right. You know, I find it, I find it very devastating to the family as well. I mean, you know, think about it. It's like, at least in my mind, it's pretty selfish for a person to think about themselves and not think about the outcome of their family life and their, and, and who they're affecting. But at the same time, how could they, how could they know, how could they, yeah. you know? And, and so, I mean, what about the family and friends of the addicted person? What, what, I mean, tell me about that. What should they well, do? How is yeah, this going to work? The, uh, you have the addicts who are what I would call the afflicted with the disease. But then you have the family members and close friends, and I would call those the affected. Mm. So you got the afflicted and the affected. And the companion illness of dependency is codependency. Mm. So if, if dependency means you're hooked on an addictive substance, codependency means you're hooked on an addicted person. Mm. So the person is actually kind of your drug. Mm. And, and what goes along with that is there uh, is a lot of condition of low self-worth. There's self-doubt. Am I crazy or are they really acting that weird? Uh, people who uh, hang with addicted persons have difficulty with boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know, how much is enough? And self-esteem issues. Oftentimes they are overly loyal, even more than loyalty deserves. Mm. They have problems having balance in their life. They get into control issues because, you know, they're trying to control, let's say a wife has a husband who's an alcoholic. She's trying to control his drinking and his behavior and she mm. can't do it. So she gets controlling in other areas. There's perfectionism, which tries to cover up the shame. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've got the afflicted and the affected. Now, the, the second group of the affected would be what we call um, ACOA, which stands for Adult Children of Addicts. Mm. And that means 
not not people who necessarily married addicts or uh, became friends, but people who grew up in the addictive illness, and they are uh, people who really struggle with knowing what what we would refer to as quote normal unquote <laughs> because you know for all of us my version of normal is whatever I grew up with mm-hmm. and your version of normal is whatever you grew up with no matter how mm-hmm. wacky it might have been either way mm-hmm. so they they grow up with all kinds of uh, shame issues you know uh, parents who are sick who are telling them they're no good uh, and they they are basically Adult children of addicts are survivors. I, there's a TV show called Survivor, and mm-hmm. I, I always think that it should be made up totally of adult children of alcoholics and addicts because they would do terrific at surviving. But the problem with this is that these same survival skills oftentimes don't work very well later on in life mm-hmm. in situations that are healthier, like things that uh, happen are impulsiveness because when if, when you're a kid – uh, like one guy in treatment I talked to, he said, whenever I had two nickels to rub together, I immediately ran down to the store and bought some candy or bought a toy because I knew if dad came home, he would search the house oh. and take all the children's money and he would run and get, get drugs on it, get, oh get drunk on it. So it, it's trained impulsiveness. And oftentimes the rules change in an addictive family. What you can do one day when dad is drunk, he'll beat you for the next day when he's not drunk. Mm. So, that, so there's all these, there's problems in relationships because of this, because a, a person feels like, well, maybe I'm not worthy of having uh, a good relationship. So, you know, I'm thinking of a woman that I know who went out with uh, a whole bunch of losers, and then she accidentally wound up with a good guy, and she dumped him in a hurry because she felt horribly inadequate next mm. to him and went back to more losers. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's all this uh, uh, perfectionism and sometimes uh, procrastinating things. The opposite of that would be workaholic. Let me give you an example of this. My mother was an ACOA. My grandfather was an alcoholic. And mom grew up knowing that she had to take care of her dad, who was old and drunk, and her mother, who was timid and uneducated and mm. backward. And so she she learned to take care of them. But the, the downside was that, you know, she had those shame issues and the pressure to perform and perfectionism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There There is there can be an upside sometimes if people can survive that. And that is that uh, my mother <laughs> determined real early on, if anything good is going to happen, it's up to me. Uh, my mom's not going to make it happen. My dad's not going to, you know, they're they're too busy in their illness. So she was a real self-starter, and she could do anything. And and uh, not coincidentally, she became a registered nurse uh, later in life after my sister and I were born. She was used to taking care of people. Why not get paid for it? Right. Oh, my gosh. Wow. (laughs) So that's why – that's another reason why we have – at the hospital I worked in, I got to know a lot of the nurses, and especially the nurses in the emergency room or in uh, uh, intensive care. They were just excellent at dealing with chaos and trauma, mm. and, and many of them came from addicted family systems, and that's because they were used to chaos. Being in the, the wild emergency room with people screaming and bleeding and shouting and carrying, that just seemed like home to them. Wow. You know, that's what they were used So they're very good at it, wow. probably better than the, than the average bear uh, at doing that, but you know, they pay a price for that too yeah. with the downside stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, I was I was listening as you know just the other day about stress, about your belief system in stress. Some people believe that stress is good for you, and they don't have any resulting uh, issues with their bodies. But then people who believe that stress is bad for you have issues with their heart. They have issues with their their concentration and things like that. So obviously, the stress that they've gone through in their lives kind of prepared them for what they're doing now. But not everybody recovers from certain such things. You know, these children. They grow up in these these circumstances, and some of them become addicts themselves. It's kind of right. like you know, it's really. I mean, it's really a loss of control for everyone, even for those who can pull it together. Right, right. They still they still end up with problems, mm. uh, and and there's a lot to overcome. My mother worked very very hard on her adult child of an alcoholic issues, but. Um, let me give you an example. At the mm-hmm. end of her life, she had cancer and congestive heart failure. My sister and I went up to spend some time with her because we knew she was dying. And she was sitting on the couch. That's about all she could do with it. And she said, well, you know, uh, I, I guess I could watch my program on television that I like if I, I work on this sewing a little bit. And my sister said, you know what, Mom? You could probably watch your program even if you didn't do any sewing. Right. And that sounded like blasphemy to my mother. Mm-hmm. And here's her statement. Well, you can't just sit there and do nothing. <laughs> and and, and uh, we, until the day she died, she never, you know, got over that. So on her tombstone, instead of putting loving wife and mother, what we probably should have chiseled down there was, well, you can't just sit there and do nothing. Yeah, that would have been <laughs> she, good. Wow. She, she was kind of a, she had become kind of a human doing instead of a human being. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That really did affect her. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay, so, I mean... Some people say that you really can't do anything, you know, with the person that that's on drugs or having these right. situations or alcoholism, you know, until right. they hit to they hit the bottom, you know, until they go all the way right. down. I mean, is that viable? Is that true? I mean, well, it's 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 only half true. If you wait until addicted persons hit bottom, uh, for a lot of them, bottom is dead. So I don't think you want to do that. What you want to do is to use some kind of intervention that will bring bottom up to hit them mm. so that so that they feel the consequences of their disease earlier and, and that they can still have some life left. And, you know, it's a lot easier to recover from a disease when you catch it in an earlier stage than when right. you catch it at the very end. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different kinds of interventions that you can do. There is a legal intervention, which would be, uh, you know, a guy gets a DUI or a drunken disorderly or possession of uh, narcotics or something and goes before the judge. There's a lot of judges now that are pretty enlightened mm-hmm. about addictive problems. And instead of, you know, filling the jails and prisons with them, they will give them a chance to say, I'm mandating inpatient treatment for you and mm-hmm. two years of follow-up and, and be on probation. Mm-hmm. So if you have somebody in your family, you might, you might, you can go in and talk to the judge and say, you know, he's got a problem with drugs and alcohols or can you, can you order him to treatment? Mm-hmm. And a lot of judges will do that. So that's a legal intervention. There's also medical interventions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was part of this when I worked at the hospital for five years, I was the nicotine dependency counselor. And I remember going in and the doctors would order me to see people who were tobacco users. And, and, and I came in and the doctor pulled up a chair in front of the patient. He said, look, John, I've been your physician for a long time and I've tried to keep up with your, your, keep your health up. But here's the deal. You have beginning stages of COPD. 
I cannot keep up with that if you keep smoking. Right. So I've asked Cal to come here to help you out with this. Are you willing to take the help to quit smoking? Mm. And the guy said, yeah, I, I've known I needed to for a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. Mm. And then, you know, I worked with him and he did get off. He did get off tobacco. Mm. So that, that would be a medical intervention of some kind. Right. Then there is the employee intervention, which is if somebody comes in drunk or they're missing work or they have, have a drug screen that shows up uh, dirty, the employer can, you know, give them what I call the godfather offer. Okay. That's where he, he says, ah, do you like your job? <laughs> that you're going to love treatment. And then yeah. they volunteer to go. Uh -huh. So. There's that. There, I've, I've even had what I call the Beagle intervention. We had a guy who was an alcoholic, and the reason he came into treatment was because he he loved his dog, his Beagle dog, Buddy. And whenever he would drink, Buddy wouldn't have anything to do with him. <laughs> so, wow. so he, he came. He came into. He lived alone and everything with his dog, but he came in just because of that. Now that's that's kind of funny and unusual. But anyway, I thought it was an interesting intervention. But the the the, the most powerful intervention you can probably do if you don't have any of these others is what, what is known as a structured family intervention. And that is you gather a group of people together who are concerned about the person. They all write a letter saying why they're concerned and that they love them and support them and ask them if they will get help. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a way to do this. And the best way is to hire an intervention specialist. And that costs some money, but it's certainly not as much money as you're going to waste on alcohol and drugs and hospital stays. And that person, the intervention specialist, knows everything to do. They know which treatment centers take insurance, which don't. You know, they, they know tell you how to, to do your letters. They arrange people. They make sure that people who are going to spill the beans aren't part of that, um, that intervention process. And so, you know, you could do that on your own without an intervention specialist, but it's, it's more difficult. There's a book I will recommend if you want to do it alone. Uh, the book is called Love First, and it's by Kip uh, um, and uh, what's it? their last name is Jay, I think. Anyway, you can get it at Hazelden Foundation, Love First. It'll walk you right through wow. how you do a, a structured family intervention. So that that's something I would recommend if you want to do it by yourself. So, yeah, to intervene, you know, don't let somebody hit bottom and die. Right. Bring bottom up to hit them. Definitely, definitely. What about relapse? You know, some people, they stay away. You know, some people get religious and religion helps them. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but what do you yeah. do if you, if a person's been off, like Whitney Houston, she was off for a while and all of a sudden that one night and it killed her and it killed her. Yeah. What, what do you do? Relapse. Relapse is, is a part of the disease of addiction. Mm. Relapse is the default position of recovery. In other words, it's not a question of whether somebody might relapse. If they don't have a, an ongoing program of recovery every day, they automatically will relapse. One of the uh, one of the images that I used in a group on the treatment center was to tell the patients: Imagine you are on in a in a department store on an an escalator that's going down, mm -hmm. and that's that's your disease. Your disease is always pulling you down. Now, what your recovery program is, is you, you have to take the steps. Like when I was a kid running up the down staircase, mm. you have to take the steps at least as fast or a little faster than the escalator is pulling you down. Mm. You don't have to run down the escalator and fall on your face on the bottom. All you have to do is stand still for a while, and it will automatically happen. Wow. Wow. So... 
So here's here's some uh, here's some things you want to look for. Uh, if people uh, signs of relapse would be uh, not going to their aftercare meetings, no twelve step meetings, A A N A O A G A C A, or not enough meetings. They don't do any sharing of anything personal. They don't get a sponsor. They don't call their sponsor. And I would suggest every day. Mm. They still hang out with old buddies. They still go out to slippery places like alcoholics going to bars mm. and coke addicts going to the dope house. You know, loneliness, isolating, resentment, self-pity, unresolved shame issues. There's no maintenance is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. there's, there, if mm. there's no maintenance, it's not a question of they might relapse. They automatically will. Wow. They're, they're, in, they're in relapse every day. They're not doing something for recovery. Mm. Now, this is, you know, it's, it's sad. Uh, I mean, I think that this is one of the greatest problems with our nation. I mean, maybe even worldwide, you know, and, and it's like, it's like this. Okay. Some people are just addicted to sugar, but that can't be good for you either. I mean, it's like, no. so addiction is addiction, even though it's not drugs, drugs, sugar is right. and can be a drug right. and can damage the body just like any other uh, issue right. if you're addicted to it. I mean, is there any hope for this? Is there any hope for us to get rid of, at least to help some? Yeah, there. It, it, when you said it first, you know, it's a large problem. It's It's not only a large problem, it's our number one health problem in our country. Mm. It's number one. All, when you think of all, we consider all the addictions you can have, you know, sugar, uh, that's part of eating disorders, um, tobacco, drugs, alcohol, uh, prescription drugs, gambling, sex, spending, um, tobacco, and even, here's one that's really becoming more and more popular, game slash computer slash iPhone addiction. Mm. There's a lot of young people in particular, there's older people too, but more young people who are just sitting on their devices for 20 hours a day. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, and, I, and I've seen, I, I saw, I watched a family walk into a restaurant and all four of them, there was mom, dad, teenage daughter, preteen son. They all four had their iPhones out. They never spoke one word to each other the whole time they had their Chinese dinner. They could barely glance up to give the waitress their order. And as they walked out, they had their phone in hand. As they all walked out, they never, I just sat there and watched the whole thing. They never said a word yeah. to each other. Yeah, now, to no. me, that's a problem. It is. But it there are, is. But on the other hand, as you said, is there any hope? Absolutely. There are millions of people who are in recovery and living fulfilling lives. Yeah. And in fact, some of these people are having a more fulfilling life in recovery than if they had never become addicted. Mm. I had a friend who used to say, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic and addict. And somebody asked him one time, I mean, you're grateful you're recovering? He said, no, I'm grateful I'm an addict because without that, I would have never found a spiritual way by which to live and my life would have not been nearly as rich as it is now. So millions of people are in recovery. Millions more could be prevented from becoming addicted with more education and awareness. It's difficult uh, to prevent addiction because, you know, it's, it's so prevalent in our uh, culture and people are looking for a quick fix. And a lot of young people start out and they don't know what's going to happen. Uh, they just, you know, they do what feels good and, you know, there's no sense that this is going to hurt them. Mm -hmm. So prevention is difficult. But I think we still can do some with education awareness. And that's why I wrote my book, Knowledge to Power, Understanding mm -hmm. and Overcoming Addiction. Definitely. And where can people get that? Where can people reach you? 
to get that people book. Can, people can get that book directly from the publisher, which is Outskirts Press. So outskirtspress.com. They can get it at Barnes & Noble, or they can get it at Amazon. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. I want to thank you so much for being on the show, uh, for giving your knowledge about addiction. I mean, this is something that, like you say, it's a plague. It's, it's plaguing the nation. It's the number one issue that we have. Um, and I think it's because we're just not paying attention to each other anymore. You know, it used to be back in the day. I mean, I know we still had those issues, but it wasn't number one. I think it was heart disease that was number one at one point. Um, but now it's like addiction, you know, I I remember when it was heart disease, which is pretty prevalent. I mean, you know, come on, you're not getting out of this alive kind of thing, you know, but we don't need to speed up the process. (laughs) You know what I mean? So definitely, I think that if anyone is struggling with this or if they have a family member that is struggling with this, go ahead and check this book out and and definitely uh, go ahead and we'll have the information in our description box below this interview that you can copy and paste this into your browser. And uh, please, you know, even if you buy it for a gift, get it for something because, I mean, it's the number one issue that we have in the country. And so even if you don't know, we do know someone who knows someone. So, wow. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It has been such a pleasure having you. Well, it's been a pleasure to be able to talk to you and hopefully give some people some information that will lead to hope. That's that's my passion. That's what I want to do. Definitely. And Cal, again, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And you guys, okay. thank you so much for joining us here on Dream Chasers Radio. And, uh, you know, just keep keep it keep it alive, keep it going, and um, let's help somebody. Again, don't forget to what? Just dare to be different, guys. <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs> How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.